Wait, are you gaming on a Chromebook? Yep. It's got a high-res 120Hz display, plus this killer RGB keyboard. And I can access thousands of games anytime, anywhere. Stop playing. What? Get out of here. Huh? Yeah, I want you to stop playing and get out of here so I can game on that Chromebook. Got it. Discover the ultimate cloud gaming machine, a new kind of Chromebook. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a Raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live because you shouldn't have to change teams even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. Between the kids being home and hosting, everything in our house gets used up in summer. With Instacart, I can save money by stocking up on all my favorite summer brands. I save time by getting everything delivered in as fast as an hour. And I save myself a sink full of dirty dishes by stocking up on paper plates for the annual summer cookout. Save more on summer essentials? Spend more time enjoying summer. Add summer to cart. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Like this podcast? Why not try Double Century, my podcast on the history of cricket? Want to know why England's first test keeper was in jail? Or the moment when we learned to hit the ball over our heads? Find Double Century in all of your greatest podcast apps. England suck a lot in the 90s. So much so that their sucking seemed to affect all English cricket fans from that era. They are a broken, deformed bunch. Perhaps none more so than our guest on today's episode. My name is Emma John and I am an author and a sports writer. This week on Red Inca, we talk about Emma's teen years spent clipping things from newspapers, her journey in meeting so many of those 90s players, and how so many cricketers from that era are a bit like characters in the background of Adam Sandler films. Not that long ago, I was in a bar with a bunch of cricket writers, which you'd be shocked. It does happen occasionally, Emma. And while I was there, a lot of them were talking about cricket, but they were specifically talking about the fact that they are experts on a particular time in cricket that they don't write about professionally. Because, you know, from the age of about 12 to the age of about 22, they were like hardcore cricket fans and they knew everything about whatever their subgenre of nerdishness was. Yeah. And when I heard this conversation, I actually thought about your book because that's kind of what you have gone and done in your book, isn't it? <laughs> You've gone and, and written a book about the time you're an expert and to cash in on, on that sort of nerdish moment in your life. I think what you'll find happened is that somebody suggested I wrote a book and I, there was only one thing I knew enough about to write a book. <laughs> but it makes sense, doesn't it? Because whatever age you start, you know, I'm trying to think. I started copying fielding positions when I was about nine or ten to come up with strategies, right? So that's about the, the age where obviously I went in too far, if you will. Like, I didn't just know who was playing for Victoria or who was playing for Victoria's second eleven, but I knew who the best 20 prospects were in club cricket and what club teams they were to a staggering degree. But realistically, by the time you become a professional, I wouldn't say you're jaded, but you actually have to do the work so you don't just go off and look at the stuff you want. So it's really fascinating that you then went back and a big part of your sports writing career is writing about yourself as a sports fan. Yes, that's partly uh, the classic imposter syndrome at work there, in the sense of even though I did spend my teenage years, and I sort of relate this in the book, the first and only work experience that I had was working for a cricket magazine and for various iterations of cricket media. Despite this fact, and despite the fact that my first real job in journalism was for the Wisdom Cricket Monthly, which was literally the most august cricket publication you could probably write for. I still never actually believed that I was a cricket writer or a sports journalist of any description. It always felt like I was just kind of making it up because everybody else always knew so much more than me. So I think that going back to the comfort of writing about the 90s and the era that yes, I was an expert in, was something that I was always going to enjoy. But it was also something that did remind me that I sort of know what I'm talking about sometimes. 
which is beneficial. And I have always really liked that aspect of writing as a fan as well. One of my favourite sports writers of all time was Frank Keating, because even though he was a brilliant observer of sport and he would go drinking with all of his famous sports people and was an era when the journalists knew their lives in and out. And there was still something about the lens through which he wrote, which you could tell he was writing from the kind of pure, unadulterated place of just love of watching the sport. He wasn't really writing as a reporter as such. I think when I was starting out in cricket writing, I was around a lot of people who were already very good, hard-nosed reporters and writers on the game in that way. And I did like retreating to that place of, this is how I've always seen it. And there was a gentleness about it that I did not find in a lot of the contemporary writing that I read at that time. And that was something that I always loved about Frank's writing. It was it was so warm and so gentle and so relatable in every way. And um, I sort of aspired to that, really. I sort of came in on the end of the fans with laptops era when who's that terrible tabloid writer that he called all the bloggers that um, in the UK and it became a, a big stigma. And I always thought that's such a weird way of looking at it because there are some brilliant journalists within sports journalism who are not massive fans of sport, but they're really good journalists and they bring it all together and they're, they're great. And there's some brilliant writers who like sport, but also can write about other things. But there is something about being a fan. And if you're lucky enough and you're also a good journalist or also a good writer and bringing it together, but realistically, if it doesn't start with you being a fan for me, I, I kind of worry about the real aspect of it. So it's interesting that you talk about Frank Keating because he sort of managed to do that for, what, 40 years? Write about it as a fan. <laughs> but once you've got the newspaper badge on it, it didn't seem to matter as much. So are there other writers out there that, you know, that you've sort of seen that you think have that sort of similar uh, verve about them? Yes. I always loved Martin Johnson's writing, the man who used to write for The Independent. Again, it was the humour. He was so witty, but the wit and humour was conveyed in this way because the jokes that he was telling were the kind of things that you thought, even if you weren't kind of quick enough to like say it out loud and get the joke uh, and get the laugh from your friends. It was still the kind of thing that you as a fan were thinking. And I loved his writing for that. And actually, I think even Matthew Engel's writing often had a lot of, of that perspective in it. What I never particularly enjoyed was when the opinion became more and more caustic. And it was, you mentioned the word jaded. I did always wonder if there was an element of that, that, that people, especially, gosh, especially in my England era, that, you know, the people who had followed the England team and had to write about them day in, day out for those 18 or however many years were running out of um, ways to analyse them <laughs> with any kind of uh, patience or kindness. And so there was a this kind of caustic-ness to some of the opinion and and they are laughing at them, which you can kind of take away if you remember why you like sport in the first place, which is that you like these people, you like the characters, and that ultimately you invest, you choose to put part of your heart and your soul into this thing that you're watching because otherwise there's no point really is there otherwise what is sport I mean there's a big philosophical question for you but if you don't invest in it in any way it's just people making funny physical jerking movements and throwing projectiles at each other I mean, the first part of that could have been porn that you were talking about. I suppose you brought it back slightly, but yeah, I, I think you're right. So let's go back. So my bedroom when I was a kid, I had three posters up. One was Victoria Wins the Ashes for 93 Ashes. I had another one that was literally Shane Warne bowling Gatting with all of the words of Richie Benno's commentary at the bottom. And the other one was that, which rotated quite regularly, was the entire Victorian team up on my poster. And then underneath all that, I had this radio from my grandfather that was like almost as big as my desk, looking back on it. But that was the cricket radio. It never went to the FM channels because once it went to FM, it wouldn't work anymore. So you had to keep it on AM. So those were like my cricket things. In fact, one of my posters on the wall had James Sutherland, the um, Cricket Australia CEO. And I told him that I had a picture of him up on my wall as a kid. And you've never seen anyone look less comfortable. But... <laughs> For your, for your um, 
for your uh, your promotionary um, stuff. There's photos of you all over uh, online. You obviously did a photo shoot at, back in your bedroom. Could you take us through your childhood crickety bedroom? I mean, yeah, I've got to say three posters, Jared. That's pathetic, yeah. really. That's never going to win you a place on the <laughs> Hall of Fame of slightly creepy stalkerish sports fans, <laughs> of which my bedroom definitely made me one. Yeah. So what I did was... This all started in 93 when I fell in love with cricket and I was learning about it from my mother. She's a big cricket fan in our family. And so I was getting the oral history. I was getting all the folklore from her. She was explaining to me who the people were on the TV as we watched it on delightful free-to-air terrestrial television. And I had a lot to learn. And in that obsessive way that you do when you're a teenager who suddenly decides that this is the thing that she has to focus all her remaining brain cells on. I just went to the newspapers because, yes, 93 was pre-internet. <laughs> <laughs> and so we did not Google. And so I, I would buy all the newspapers for all the match reports. I was very Catholic in my taste. I had tabloids as well as the broadsheets and magazines. Um, I wanted to read as much as I could. So when it started, it was during the 93 Ashes, I just started cutting out the match reports as a as a souvenir I guess I, di I didn't have any other kind of cricket memorabilia so I started cutting them out I didn't really want to scrapbook them because I sort of knew that if I put them in a scrapbook they were never going to see the light of day again so I would go to the stationers WH Smith to be precise uh, thank you WH Smith for your sponsorship of my madness and I would buy a three pieces of card in different colours. And then I would make collages of all these endless reams of newsprint, match reports and opinion pieces and pictures and headlines. And then once I'd filled an A3 piece of card, it went up on my wall. And that became a habit, which went on, well, until I left home. So that was three years until I went to university. And in those three years, I managed to cover every wall and the ceiling of my bedroom. And I even had to start cutting funny angles and, you know, making different kind of shapes so that I could fit them Good in man. anywhere under the eaves and slanting spaces next to the windows. What happens when a friend <laughs> who perhaps knows you like cricket but doesn't know you that well comes over... Because you know, these were the days when friends would drop in at your house sometimes unannounced because either that or you had to ring the parents on the, on the main phone. So, you know, you'd be in your room and then suddenly it's something to be a knock at the door be one of your friends. I can imagine that someone coming into your house and they're coming into your room and just maybe slowly backing away. Well, luckily, I went to an all-girls school and my girlfriends, they obviously had witnessed this ridiculous dramatic change in me in the summer of 93. They saw where this madness began to the point at which, you know, and I was the goodest little goody, goody two shoes at school, but I was now sneaking my radio into class and trying to listen to it and getting told off by the teachers. So they had seen what was happening and the posters they were aware of, they despaired of <laughs> and... None of them were into cricket. They couldn't understand it at all. So really, that side of my life was very much kind of written off and just mocked by every friend I had. The normies. Yeah. I had no real male friends. Actually, that's not true. I had a few, but they were not into cricket either. So that didn't help. And so it was a very solitary pursuit. <laughs> As pursuits in one's teenage bedroom often are, Jared, as I'm sure you know. <laughs> I'm not sure what you mean by that. But 93, you get obsessed. Is there anything else in your life or is it just cricket at that point? Well, and schoolwork, I assume, to just take over from that point onwards. It was one other thing. I had another obsession that also people now think, continue to think is weird. I was very, very into alternative comedy, specifically the kind of stuff that had come out of Cambridge Footlights. This is why I wanted to go to university, why I wanted to go specifically to Cambridge University and read an English literature degree was because apart from my cricket heroes, the other heroes in my life were all people like Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie and Emma Thompson 
and Rowan Atkinson and all these people who made me laugh a lot and who sketch shows I would record on VHS and then watch them over and over and over again until that I could quote every single line and until the screen went fuzzy because I'd worn the tape out. So unfortunately, no, it wasn't just the one weird obsession I had. It was the two. But the comedians, they began getting their own posters, but they actually got knocked off the wall by the cricketers. So they still lived in my heart, but just not on my walls. Sorry, Rowan Atkinson, you'll have to move. I've got another Derek Pringle to put up. Um, (laughs) All right. So what was your theme? So because we're talking about that specifically, like when I think about my teenage years, I kind of know roughly the team in my head, the 11 in my head that I mean. What's your England team from the 90s? That is a good one because as we know, the problem with the England team of the 90s was an absolute shambles <laughs> and it incorporated at least a thousand different personnel over the course of weekly that decade. <laughs> <laughs> so in fact, this was one of the real troubles I had when I conceived of this book writing about the 90s was well how do you write about that without I really had this like idea that I wanted to narrow it down to 11 and it was like well that's impossible because in no year was there one 11 either that stuck around together or that I would be happy to be my representative of of my youth because really you had these characters come and go bowlers especially Martin McKay, Joey Benjamin, Mark Eilert, Peter Such, you know, they were just on a wash cycle going round and round and and falling out like an odd sock. So in the end, when I came up with the 11 that I wanted to talk to in the book, I spread it out over the years and I tried to come up with an 11 that represented that entire decade and how it moved. I mean, obviously, the characters who never changed were Mike Aston and Alex Stewart and Angus Fraser. They were there pretty much throughout, injury permitting, especially for Stuart and Fraser. And then there were characters who were so big that they were always going to make your team, like Dominic Cork. I mean, because really he was the only all-rounder that could make it into an England team and perform on an international level. Again, wicketkeepers, it had to be Jack Russell. It would always be Jack Russell, even though... He was definitely not in any way a kind of staple of the 90s. But I just can't keep asking Alex Stewart to take the gloves. I can't do it to him. I won't. I won't do it to him. I mean, apart from that, it's quite funny because the people you start putting in your team, Graham Hick, Mark Ramprakash, Alan Mullally, they're all the same people who used to get regularly dropped (laughs) because they didn't perform. And yet, in my head, that is... 90s cricket personified. They may never have all played together. They almost certainly never all played together. And yet, in my head, they did. That was what our team looked like week after week. It's weird. I don't know if you know the stat, but no 11 in Test Match Cricket has ever played more than 11 times together. And that was... I did not know that stat. Yeah, I think it was early 90s West Indies. I think Australia might have got to 10 times, a couple of times through their great run. So you basically have to be two of the best teams of all time just to play that many times together. So that's part of the reason I asked. And your answer was quite interesting because the way you do have to put it together, because if I think about it, I kind of have this sort of Damien Fleming, Paul Rifle vision in my mind because they were the Victorian guys of my early youth coming through. But they didn't play that much. I mean, Fleming hardly played. Fleming is ridiculously more famous. I mean, he was a brilliant player, don't get me wrong, but he didn't play that much because he was always injured. You know, he used to think about the word injury and get injured. <laughs> and in your case, it's not the injuries, well, although there was a couple of those, but Hick and Rampakash must have just been on like pogo sticks next to each other, <laughs> hopping in and out of the team. And then you mentioned someone like Malali. So it's really interesting when we, we kind of fixate on this thing. I remember um, um, Nottinghamshire, a uh, cricket writer, wrote this big piece about the perfect slip cordon. He talked about Australia's cordon. And I was just like, yeah, that cordon, I don't think ever took the field together because whoever he had would would have overlapped with each other. We don't think that way because we almost have this decade of that's the team, but that doesn't really exist in that way, does it? Definitely not. I mean, England's biggest problem all the way through the 90s was that they could not find a bowling attack that could stay together for more than one game. I mean, we're literally talking a bowling attack that could stay together for more than one game would have been really nice. But that never happened, mainly because people broke down constantly, partly because of the amount of county cricket they were playing. 
and the lack of preparation they got for test matches. So we were just always constantly knackering our fast bowlers. And then you would throw them in, your Martin Bicknells, all these people who would turn up and play one, maybe two games if they were lucky. And they would have very, very average games. They they always had average games, mainly because of your lot, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> and so the real breakthrough for me as an England fan was not when Darren Goff emerged, although that was, you know, he was the light of my life when he suddenly, you know, appeared on the scene in 94, I think. 94, 95, he played in the Ashes, didn't he? So he must have been, yeah, yeah there and thereabouts. Yeah, that's right. He played against New Zealand in early 94. And um, and so he was just this joyous kind of, you know, the classic England's new white hope, you know, like that, just that classic trope that emerged again and again over the 90s. It was like, everything's going to be okay now because we've got a new captain called Michael Afton. We've got a new bowler called Darren Goff. But really, the breakthrough didn't happen until Goff started pairing regularly with Caddick, which wasn't until... 97, I think. And that was the first time in four years of watching cricket that I'd ever seen England have a duo that that actually kind of worked in partnership. I didn't know that was something you could have, really. (laughs) I mean, that was one of my great educations as a cricket fan. It's a bizarre education, but I I only realised when I got a job, actually, when I started working at Wisdom Cricket Monthly and, um, and was working alongside your countryman, Chris Ryan, and Peter English and people like this who had actually spent most of their life watching a a very effective, devastating cricketing setup and realising that actually, no, the way I felt about cricket was unique and it was specific to me because I had grown up in a period where you had to accept defeat all the time and you had to pin your hopes on absolutely nothing. And that, that creates a very, very different approach to sport than if you grow up with a bunch of winners. The great despair that you sort of lived in. It is really interesting the way that different countries talk about their cricket teams because of that. So I could completely understand it. That period, by the end of the 90s, England were ranked almost bottom. I think, were they ranked under Zimbabwe at one point? Yeah, they were. 99 was, was when they slipped to the bottom of the table beneath Zimbabwe. You talk about a lot the fact that as bad as England were on a global level, it was actually quite an amazing time for cricket. And when I did my history of test cricket, that was one of the things that I I basically came out with. I would say from about early 80s through to Hansi Kronje, that was probably the absolute peak of cricket because for the first time ever, New Zealand and Pakistan, who had always been terrible, were suddenly good. We had a team that wasn't Australia, England or South Africa that were the best team in the world. You had regular tours being played all around the world. The quality of the players was remarkable. It wasn't that England was particularly bad, although they weren't always great, let's be honest. It was that they were going up against absolutely brilliant, especially bowling attacks, every series. Absolutely. And it's something that we definitely did not appreciate at the time. And that's another reason why I think cricket writing is a really interesting thing. I think if I... Not that I'm threatening to do this, but if I got my posters out and shared them with you now, <laughs> yes, I still have them. In fact, some of them are next door right now. <laughs> um, but if I got them out and read some of the things that were said about the England team and the England team's batting, what you would really notice is that there wasn't enough focus in any of that writing on how brilliant the attacks that they were coming up against, the batsmen that they were coming up against. There were stars of the time, you know, there was Sachin Tendulkar. His narrative was was already pre-written because he'd been so young when he started, that kind of thing. Brian Lara, you know, sheer weight of numbers. We all know we're in the presence of greatness, record breaker, dot, dot, dot. But I think people like Anand Donald and Sean Pollock, and Fanny de Villiers, mm. and the Kirsten brothers, who nobody enjoyed watching, who were still, you know, Dravidian in their approach to the crease. These kind of characters, that was what the international scene was made up of. People would quite often, like, be a bit mealy-mouthed about Wazim and Wakar because they hadn't bowled as well today as they did on that day in 92 or whatever when the ball was arcing. And it's like, well, they're still people that you're going to be talking about for the next 50 years, you know? And I think 
that's something that when we were in it, none of us appreciated. And that did result in England getting a much worse reputation than, ah, I'm not even going to try and argue they got a worse reputation than it deserved. I mean, you know, they lost repeatedly. So of course they deserved that reputation. But there was a reason for it. No, I think you're right. I think that looking back, it was such a strong era. Like, for instance, Zimbabwe coming from nowhere to having Heath Streak and Andy Flower, two incredible cricketers. And you were talking about, you know, Pollock and Donald and Fanny de Villiers. Every team seemed to have, you know, Ian Bishop, Damien Fleming, and all those sorts of players, and Craig McMillan and, and Astle. Not even the main guys, but the guys beneath were actually really, really top-level cricketers. But I think the, the biggest difference was, at that stage, all cricket media was so laser focused on only themselves because you didn't have cable tv that often or at all in some cases you didn't have crick info unless you were literally building a linux machine and setting it up from scratch and you were at a university people didn't have those sorts of things so it was very hard to compare to other places and i remember rail driver turned up to australia in 96 i think and i said to all my family this guy you can't wait to see this guy. And of course he fails and has a terrible thing. And my uncle's like... <laughs> so you've been, embarrassing when that happens. Your uncle's like, you've been talking this guy up for ages. And I was like, trust me. And it wasn't for what? Seven years he came back and absolutely made all the runs. My uncle looked at me and went, oh. But I had seven years of him taking the piss about that. And that's because we didn't know about any of those sorts of people. Whereas now, even like mid-level cricketers, you can have a very good idea of them before they come up. That didn't happen. So... If you're an England cricket fan and you're only watching England lose over and over again, obviously you're going to think, well, we're terrible rather than thinking, wait a minute, when did cricket get so good? We invented this. I know that's a really good point. I had not really considered that, but you're right. The, the sort of breadth of our scope, it was extraordinarily narrow, especially when you consider how much used to get written about cricket in this country. I'm guessing it was the same in Australia, but certainly in this country where we have such a large and diverse media and acres of newsprint in the broadsheets and the tabloids was given over to sports coverage. And so much of it was really following the same vain and not attempting to provide anything else. And I, I don't know what that says about wh whether that was driven by the reader's appetite or whether it was just slightly blinkered editing. I have no idea. Maybe it was it was to do with travel and, as you say, just purely the fact that people didn't get around as much and didn't see as much. I don't know. But that is, yeah, I think that's really true. I think we did all have a, a really myopic view of cricket back then. But of, of course, we also spent a lot more time thinking and dwelling on our domestic structures than we do now. So not myopic in that sense. We looked, it was more microscopic. We, <laughs> we like to look under every leaf. When your book came out, was it at a similar time when Butcher's documentary came out? Were they roughly released at the same time? Yeah, my book came out the year before. I like to claim a bit of credit for Butch <laughs> getting commissioned to do that show. <laughs> but, but it seems like it was a very good time to suddenly look back. And it's interesting because a lot of these cricketers, like Alan Mullally, what did he play, 20, 25 tests? If that, I don't think that it was that many. No, I don't think it probably got into 17, the 20s. Maybe 17. There are cricketers like him. You mentioned Peter Such before. I mean, we could go through them. There was something almost like the background characters in Adam Sandler films, if you know what I mean, in that they weren't there that much, but they all had these incredible lines that, you know, that you can do it guy and all those sorts of things. And then they'd all end up with their own kind of spin-offs. It felt like it was a much richer time for weird characters coming through the English game. I'm not saying, I mean, weird people have always been in English cricket, Major Bennett and Seymour Clark and all these sorts of random human beings that go through the history of cricket. But it seems like a very weird time where suddenly cricket was becoming an international sport. And, you know, you have someone in India who has a real opinion on, on Alan Mullally and you have someone in New Zealand who remembers, you know, Mark Elam more than he should. You know what? Someone like Zoltzman goes on those old cricket comedy shows, right? And it's all those guys that are in the clips where, where you see them. So they're well known enough for that. But there hadn't been like this forensic look at them since. And then you do your book and then and then Butcher's documentary on Sky comes out. It's almost like everyone in England needed some time to heal and then delve back in. <laughs> did. That's what it was. Oh, my goodness. It's not comedy until the tragedy is over. Yeah. So we all needed 05. That had to happen because we had to get out of the trenches so that we could then have somebody write a blackadder for us. Just combining my two favourite things there, cricket and 
and 90s comedy. <laughs> the other thing is I do think, like I said, there was a bit of an unkindness towards many of these characters at the time and closer to the time because we were going through the professionalization of English cricket and that just threw into relief its complete <laughs> lack of professionalism and the sort of glorious bits and bobs and pieces of eight of the 80s where anybody could be a county cricketer and might even get an England game and it didn't matter what you looked like or how fast you bowled. <laughs> there was a place for you. And that is a delightful thing. That is something that we all know cricket has lost, you know? That is something that was really unique to a sport that did not require you to be hench or, you know, it did not require you to be able to sprint with bolt-like uh, movement. And that has all gone. I mean, it's not all gone. There are still outliers. And it's wonderful that when those characters emerge now, they don't get laughed at and they don't get body shamed because we're a more enlightened human race. Uh, well, just just pause that until Rakeem Cornwall plays a whole summer in England. <laughs> but yes, I know what you mean. But yeah, yeah. I mean, he was who I was thinking about, you know. I do think that certainly in the media... He will be treated with a heck of a lot more respect than he would have been yeah. 20 years ago. The 90s were the transitional time. You know, it was the time that everybody was moving forward and Australia were 10 years ahead of us and uh, we were struggling to keep up. And that's what threw out all these anomalies and what made them look so hapless in the process. One of the things that you wrote about a lot was, and, and the players bring this up a lot, is that they were basically overworked because of the county system. So they were county cricketers who occasionally represented England. And that was essentially the big change. And to be fair, if you read about the first, what, up until World War II, really, players aren't really respected that much for individual test moments. Australian players are, and South African players, and, and some of the West Indians are, but English players are still looked at as, what's your overall first class record? That hold on really, I think, had a huge effect on, on cricket because the counties were actually, it's weird to say this now, but the counties were the ones who kind of made the money at that stage and England cricket didn't. Did you go in thinking that was a narrative or is that just a, getting 11 guys to talk about cricket and they couldn't stop mentioning it? They could not stop mentioning it. And it was funny how my own feeling about it changed because I had heard that. Obviously, I, I'd heard people say this before and, and people had written about it before in the papers, but it's a very British thing to not like what sounds like people making excuses. That is a very British trait. And I think that the cricket fan base did not massively like that narrative at the time because it sounded like people making excuses and we wanted to feel that it was a great honour to play for England again that was you're absolutely right that was very much like part of the of the narrative was that it was sort of a there was this weird sort of privilege thing attached to playing for England so yeah so it wasn't like you should get paid to play for England because it was a privilege and an honour to represent your country and it was like taking a knighthood you just did it you did it for the Queen. You didn't do it for the payments. So there was this kind of, you know, oh, this stuff's all a bit irrelevant. And I, I think I had definitely felt that way a little bit when I was growing up, that it was a bit of an excuse. It was really, yes, sitting down and hearing it not just from Phil Tufnell and not just from Graham Hick, but from Graham Thorpe, who is somebody who... I absolutely would never think of as being somebody to make excuses or shirk because he just did neither of those things. And in fact, when he talked about it, he wasn't talking on his own behalf. He was very much talking on behalf of the bowlers. But a lot of the batsmen would say that about the bowlers. And I think Tufnell described really beautifully the process of trying to get Angus Fraser out of a bath once. <laughs> Which you can imagine, I mean, Fraser's a big dude anyway, and with a dodgy back and aching limbs. And, and just the, the, the thought of, yeah, like they would be bowling however many overs and then jumping in a car and they might have 24 hours rest. And then they would be expected to go out and bowl their best for their country. And these guys were struggling to lift themselves out of a bath. And I thought, yeah. That, that was a big problem. 
that was <laughs> that was a thing. Well, it, it's interesting because uh, from a physical point of view, uh, George Bailey told me that he found county cricket very hard because he got he actually got sciatica for the first time when he played county cricket because of the amount of time he'd spent in a car. He'd never spent that much time in a car before he played. This was when he was getting a bit older. Very surreal moment in my life where we're at a ground together and he's saying, what did, what did you do for your sciatica? And I'm having to show him stretches. <laughs> but you do start to realise that. And then when you factor in, so let's go back to them not being good in the 90s. Australian cricketers are playing 10 times a year in first-class cricket and they were playing a handful of limited overs cricket, nowhere near the amount of what English cricketers were. The West Indies have always played not much domestic cricket. Most other places don't play that much domestic cricket. You're essentially saying to these guys, you are going to work at absolutely almost two full-time jobs and then be expected to go up against Kirtley Ambrose, who plays a test once every three weeks. You've got to drive in on the A1. And sadly, today, one of the lanes on the A1 is shut. So now that you're in a single lane and there's been a crash further down, it's a phenomenal thing to think about that England were... At that stage, they were still probably the richest cricket nation, and yet they had no idea of how to actually prepare their players for the ultimate level. And I think that's right, and I think our ideas of sports science, such as it was, I mean, I think everyone was very suspicious of sports science as they they were of, um, you know, Glenn Hoddle's, what was her name? His mystic Meg, Eileen Drewery. These kind of, we thought anything to do with sports science was a little bit wacky, (laughs) but I do think that there used to be this real prevailing belief that it was like running a marathon in that you only got up to your peak as a bowler if you bowled yourself into the ground. I think that genuinely there was a kind of belief that you had to put the overs in. You weren't going to be playing at your peak unless you had bowled 100 overs last week and did it again this week in the same way that, you know, marathon runners have to get the miles in their legs, as they say. And I'm pretty sure that has been revealed to be complete rubbish. Certainly. It's not something you see today. I'm trying to think of a bowler who would bowl that many deliveries. I mean, it's just... And I remember talking to Graham Swan, I said that the one difference that I saw between then and now was that a lot of those guys bowled those overs, but they did it in third gear, right? But that's only if you're Courtney Walsh or if you're a great uh, overseas player, an incredible spinner or something. If you're an average player trying to be selected for your country, you can't rein that in. You have to continually be at a level. So if you're Bicknell and you're, you're continually wanting to be picked for England, you're having to bowl at almost your maximum for Surrey at all times. It's a completely different situation than some of those other players we're going through. So it's very interesting. The other thing that you talk about in the book is selfishness. So I was brought up with two things, and I'm not, I always get in trouble when I bring this up on talk sport. People don't like it. But basically, if you read Australian sporting cricket books, right, it's basically everyone from the South is gay and everyone from the North is tough. It's so clear. They never quite come out and say it, but it's like right there the whole time, right? They're all fancy boys down south and up north. That's the real men, right? So that's the first thing you get taught. The other thing that you're taught really early on is that Australians play cricket for a team and Englishmen play cricket for themselves. And it's really interesting because, you know, I know a lot of the people that you wrote about in that book and a lot, I, know, I know a lot of the 90s cricketers. And it's like, they would have been desperate to play for a team. It's just that they didn't know if they were going to be in the team the next week, let alone in a year's time. Yeah. And nobody was helping them with that. And nobody recognized that problem or thought it needed addressing. And I have to say, I think it really is the one great flaw of Atherton's captaincy. I think it was his blind spot. I think I hate talking about Michael Athens because for so many reasons. Hi, Athens, if you're listening. <laughs> because I know that, you know, it's hard talking about somebody who's not only still alive, but like can completely contradict everything you say with a, not just the fact that he's right, but also he's brilliantly intelligent. So I'm probably talking out of my butt. However... I always get the impression from what those 90s cricketers talked to me about, they they adored him. Many of them adored him. I remember there was a quote from Steve Rhodes saying that any of those guys would have run through a brick wall for him. And I think that is a phenomenal testament to somebody's personality and career. But I think because he played tough and he wanted England to be tough and Australia were tough as nails, therefore was not sort of maybe room in his approach or psyche or something to be the arm round the shoulder guy. 
he certainly didn't have a coach with him who did that. He had Illingworth, who was a tell you to get out kind of guy. And I just think that was a massive flaw that nobody could see that at the time. And that you had this repeated problem. Hick and Ramprakash, people liked to say it was sort of, it was their own psychology that broke them. It was their own flaws and weaknesses. They couldn't do it because people like Nasser Hussain flourished. And I think, yeah, that is true. But Nasser Hussain is quite like Michael Atherton. <laughs> and the people who flourished were the people who had a bit of that Atherton grit. But there wasn't a great deal of, of recognition that there are other types of people and that they could have been great or better too but how to draw them out of that. I mean, that's something that sports psychologists only really got into in the 2000s, wasn't it? Certainly in England. And it was just, again, something that was lacking, but something that should maybe have come from the person in charge. The interesting thing about sports psychology is the early sports psychology is horrible because essentially what it's doing is making you be incredible at being an athlete, but where you will essentially have a breakdown in every other way of your life, unless you are... Ivan Lendl or, you know, someone like that. But the interesting thing is that that 90s period, there were a lot of talented English players that they didn't get the most out of uh, for many different reasons. As you said, Athens maybe did have a role to play. But the interesting thing is when they got good in around 2011, when they become the, the best team in the world in tests, when they got good in one day cricket more later, it's basically by backing talented players and keeping them in the team not making them play for this. So almost taking away that whole selfishness thing away and just going, no, no, you are the most talented player. We believe in you. We're going to give you a good go. I mean, look at some of the players who have failed for England over the last couple of years, who've still been given really, really long ropes to be able to do that. Whereas I've seen James Vince and I've seen Ramprakash bat. Ramprakash is a better batsman than James Vince. And yet James Vince had a, a lovely <laughs> long go. A couple of times there. Like, Some might say overlong. <laughs> that role, James, is there another role that you've looked at? I mean, look at Joe Denley. It's like, as long as Joe Denley keeps dressing really nicely and turning up on time to team meetings, he's involved. And it's like, that's a completely different way of looking at it. And, you know, from a sports science point of view, if you the teams that win the most are the ones who make the fewest changes. And there's two ways of looking at that. One is you don't make changes when you win that often. But the other one is that if you are pretty sure of your talent development, and this is a talented player, if you give them a long run and give them a really good go and literally say to them, you're here for a reason. Because Mark Butcher, I did a podcast with him that's never come out because it was part of another series. But essentially in it, he was saying, he was going out to bat thinking, I should not be here. I don't know what I'm doing. And amazingly enough, he failed. Whereas if you put someone in a situation like that, you can't cure imposter syndrome. I think Mitchell Johnson is the poster child for that. I mean, it basically took him destroying a whole two cricket teams before he actually believed that he was that thing. But you can put players in a better situation. It seems like the players in England, it was just like a feeding frenzy. And the press had a part to play and the fans had a part to play. Everyone just felt like they had three minutes to make themselves look good. Oh, and the tales of what it used to be like in the dressing room, it's actually horrible. It's the kind of thing that would get you done for workplace law now. You know, these people would show up and you'd have a situation where other people in the team didn't know who this person was who'd just shown up and, and been picked. They might never have played against them at County 7. They just, they just don't recognise them. They don't know who they are. People wouldn't talk to them. There was this sense of, like, siege mentality, you know? It was like England were always in a bad place and therefore they did not have time to waste on you and your feelings because we're on fire. <laughs> there's, a, there's a fire to put out here. I don't have time to check you're okay. And, of course, it's just completely self-crippling that kind of approach. They always used to really like the physio, Dave Roberts, Rooster Roberts, he was called. And you used to hear a lot of good things about him. And I did go and have a chat with him once up at Old Trafford, where he uh, is is still doing his physio work. And I think he was just the one person who they trusted to listen to them without fear of this is going to get back to Illingworth or whoever and it's going to jeopardise my place. So the, the massage table was like the one place they would unburden themselves. And that breaks my little heart. It really does. 
And I'm glad it's different. Well, I've certainly worked in cricket teams of recent times and the exact same thing seems to go on there over a couple of fifths of the teams I've worked. And I think it is just because the physio or the masseuse or sometimes the strength and conditioning person, it's usually someone in that kind of role because they're not involved in everything else and everyone else is so, as you said, trying to put out the fire. You've already slagged off athletes massively. I mean, I can't believe that you went so heavy on him. Real real apology to you, Athis, uh, when you listen back to this. But you did apply to Cambridge because of Athis, at least in part, as you said earlier. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it was a choice between, like I said, an insane teenager. And it was really a choice between Downing College, where Athis went, and Queen's College, where Stephen Fry went. And I was more intimidated by Queen's because they had more of a reputation for, like, really good English students. And I just went to see Downing. I actually snuck away from the little group tour that I was on, which was supposed to be going and looking at several different colleges. And Downing was not on the list. (laughs) I just snuck away at one point, didn't tell my teachers, just told one of the other girls and said, I'll I'll be back. And I ran down, I saw this beautiful, it's very different kind of architecture to a lot of the Cambridge colleges. It was a little bit later, it was built in the Georgian period. So it's all very open and lovely kind of stonework. I don't know, there was something about its classical beauty and the fact that I knew that Michael Atherton (laughs) had once slept in one of the rooms that um, drew me to it. And it's something that, obviously, uh, that's a big decision to make. That is like a big part of your life when you're 18 and um, something that I have had to explain ever since. (laughs) So you went to the college so you could sleep in the same place that athletes had once slept, which makes perfect sense. You then meet him, and I haven't finished your book, unfortunately, because I, I just I'm homeschooling and working full time at the moment. But is meeting Athos kind of the end of your book? Is that kind of the end of your following on journey? I hate to spoil it for you, partly because obviously the book has been out for like about five years. <laughs> um, but you know, I know it's a long read; it's two hundred and eighty pages. Hey, you have no idea how few <laughs> cricket books I read. Like it's <laughs> because I read so many when I was a kid. And then I just got in, I, I, and you, they just get sent to me all the time. I've just got like rooms of cricket books. And I'm hey, like, no judgment. I have never made it to the end of a Neville Carter's book. So I really am no one to talk. I haven't even properly got through the classics, um, let alone, uh, you know, a very silly uh, musing about 90s English cricket. But Athens at the end. So you meet him. You must have met him before. Yeah, I mean, the truth of the matter is I had had my embarrassing meetings with Athers much earlier in my career than just the one where I got to go and sit down and have lunch with him, which, you know, was the coolest thing that I had, you know, my 14-year-old self could ever imagine myself doing was sitting down and having lunch with Mike Atherton. I just love how cool you were. It's not even in a bar. It's not even (laughs) dinner. It's literally lunch. The levels of uncool that you have are just so monumental. I mean, you know, tragic doesn't begin to describe it. But yes, I had already like gone through the true embarrassment, that the worst moment. This is a story that I love, not least because it involves my first boss, Stephen Fay, who recently passed away and who was one of my mentors all the way through my life, through my writing career. And he was so wonderful to me. He was, I would not be writing about anything. I certainly wouldn't be writing about cricket and sport now if he hadn't taken me under his wing. But in my first job as this, you know, very junior editorial assistant on Wisdom Cricket Monthly, he, as I say, took me under his wing. I was invited to the Wisdom Almanac dinner because I was part of the family now. And this was a very grown up affair where everyone wore black tie. And there were about three women in the room And it's in a grand hall and the place is filled with the great and the good of English cricket. And I was early 20s. I was not that many years away from my poster years, okay? Like I had still barely come out of that cocoon. But here I was trying to pass as an adult. And so I had dressed up my best and trying to look sophisticated and... As I walked into the bar, I saw my boss, Stephen, and he was chatting with Mike Atherton. So it felt like the most natural thing in the world to walk straight up to Stephen and say hello. And when I got there, 
He said, oh, Emma, wonderful. And he put his arm around me in an avuncular way and introduced me to my Aston and said, she's in love with you, you know. Oh. <laughs> and that was the start of my cricket writing career. <laughs> Take me through to the lunch then. Because this is the thing with Athens. He would remember that. I don't know Athens brilliantly well, although I have worked with him, obviously, uh, occasionally for TalkSport, and we know each other around the press box. But I've always found him a very shy person. He very rarely comes up to you. He likes to sit in the background and sort of take everything in a little bit. The minute you talk to him, he's always very lovely. But he's one of those people that I think people would think of as rather aloof and maybe slightly arrogant. But you realize that if you say hi to him, he'll never not say hi, and he'll never not ask how you are and all that. All the normal human, nice human things he has. My limited interactions with him have been that he is the most decent person in the world. And one of the reasons that I believe him to be this decent is not least because he agreed to talk to me for the book. And the true story of this is that when I got the publishing deal, I knew that this book was going to end with me having a meeting with Mike Astors. Uh, this was this was how I'd envisioned it in my head. So he was pretty much the first person I phoned after my parents to say, Mum, I got a book deal. He was pretty much the first person I phoned to say, this is the book I would like to write. I would be talking to 11 different players. I would really need to talk to you. And would you be able to do that? And he was driving back from Sky Sports in his car and he was very cheerful on the phone. And then when I explained what I wanted to do, there was this big, long pause <laughs> during which my heart was in my mouth. And then he started to explain, Emma, I've made it a part of my policy. I don't really talk about it. I, I, I wrote my own book. That was me drawing a line under it. I don't really look back because I don't want to be one of those people who just constantly kind of talks about what it was like in their day. And then there was another little pause. And then he said, but if it's important to you, I'll do it. <laughs> and that was it. I was like, it's like, I know what Steve Rhodes is talking about. You have my undying loyalty. <laughs> you hung the phone up and you ran through a brick wall just in case Atlas <laughs> needed it. Just in case. Just in case. Uh, I think we'll leave it there. That's perfect. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can follow my guest at M underscore John on Twitter. I'm also there. Please review on Apple Podcasts or on all the podcasting apps. Tell people on Twitter. Just, you know, get it out there, really. Maybe write it on toilet walls now that we're allowed out again. Or play it loud enough that people can hear you on the train. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us on Patreon. So thank you to all of them. And if you can help us out, please head over to Patreon. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston is the producer, Mixmaster Flash. And the theme tune is called The Prisoner by The Red Crickets. Red Inca listener. Don't forget to also subscribe and listen to Double Century, a podcast where I trawl through old newspaper reports and bitter books from former players to tell the story of our great game. Find Double Century in your podcast apps. Sports Social Podcast Network.